Good morning, Creekside. Mark, I'm one of the pastors here. It's awesome to be able to worship with you. Um, we've got our, uh, we're going to open the Word of God together. So if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning. So you can start opening there. And um, I'll just start here. We are, uh, we are right at the beginning of this thing. Um, and by this thing, of course, I mean not the sermon, but uh, the 2023-24 NBA basketball season is just uh, upon us. And, and as I'm processing this, I'm watching the, the perfect fit of Steph Curry and Chris Paul and all this that's going to happen, the, the leading inevitably to the fifth NBA championship for, for Steph Curry. Um, you, guys are, you guys are like so sad. You're like, I, I love the Kings, you guys, but they, when they play the Warriors, I can't. So I grew up rooting for the, the Warriors when they were terrible, and they have not been terrible for a while, and I'm enjoying it, so give it to me while I can, okay? You guys, we're about to have, experience that with the Kings too. It's great. So I'll um, give you advice when we get there. Watching Steve Kerr talk about his, uh, his first couple of months coaching Steph Curry. So if you, if you don't know, Steph Curry is like um, one of the best basketball players ever. The, this last couple of years, he became the best shooter of all time, the most three-point shots ever made. And he's just, he's just crazy to watch. So Steve Kerr is talking about what it was like. He's a, he's a new coach, and he's coaching Steph Curry, and Steph Curry is doing this stuff where he's just like dribbling all through the defense and just every direction, going all around, and then he comes back, does a step back, turnaround, three-point shot, and you can see like footage of, of Steve Curry just like, oh my gosh, you know, he says, in my head is the voice of every coach I've ever had that is saying, that is a terrible shot. Don't shoot that shot. That's a terrible shot, right? But you can watch on this, this footage and you see, um, you know, Steph does that. Steve Kerr's like, oh my goodness. And then the shot goes in, you know, because he's Steph Curry. And he says, uh, Steve Kerr is saying, I've learned that um, that's actually a shot that, uh, that Steph makes over 40% of the time. So he says, it's not a terrible shot because it's Steph, Steph Curry. So he says, I've learned Steph gets to shoot whatever he wants to. And, um, and that's, you know, obviously worked out great to the tune of four rings. It's awesome. So what I, what I like was loving about that is just this picture of um, a coach that sees a player that's a little unorthodox in what he does, maybe a lot unorthodox, but can see the, the value of it, right? And then build a system to say, like, let's, let's make this work for Steph. Like, let's, let's, like, enhance what's already there rather than just being like, hey, stop, stop shooting, stop being who you are, do something differently. Um, this sermon is, has a lot to do with family. It has to do with opposition and with family. And one of the things I see is we have families that are, in many cases, lovely and in many cases, very broken. Right, and your family can either be that like support system, that network that um, brings life to you and, and, and enhances who you are and sees your potential and unlocks that further, or they can be the ones sometimes that hurt us the worst and oppose us the most intensely, and there can be a lot of pain. So I want to say at the outset, um, I grew up with an incredible family, and they're great, and I have nothing against them. So there, that's been said. Um, my in-laws are here this morning. I want to say they're perfect in-laws, and I've got great. I I have heard that in-laws can be tough. Mine are not. Mine are a blessing. So, um, but, but family is either, right, on our team or they're trying to stop us and oppose us. So we're going to see those dynamics with Jesus this morning. It's an interesting dynamic. This passage is all about juxtapositions. We're going to look at a few different kind of episodes here. And just seeing those two things laid next to each other is an interesting way to compare. And at the end of it, there is, I think, a really strong and a really beautiful invitation um, for all of us in that. So let's just jump in to Mark chapter 3. Um, in verse 13, we've seen Jesus is um, having increasing tension and conflict with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and Jesus is navigating that. And now we're going to see um, some kind of different uh, angles come on some of these things. So verse 13, 
And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus is here, and this is the calling of the twelve. So we've seen him invite some of these people to say, follow me. They're out fishing, and he says, follow me. They're um, in the tax booth, and Jesus says, follow me. So he's been collecting these people, and he's gotten more followers than that, more disciples. And now he goes up on a mountain to um, kind of say, okay, these are my twelve, okay? So why twelve? Why all this? I, I think what's the, the, the parallel that, that I think Mark is inviting us to see is is with the nation of Israel as a whole. Twelve is a number that makes you think of Israel because Israel was the twelve tribes of uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He was the father of twelve sons. They became the twelve tribes of Israel. And um, interestingly, if you look back at that story, uh, Israel was in, in slavery in Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, we see God coming to his people, calling them out of slavery, leading them out. They go through the, uh, the Red Sea. They go to the foot of Mount Sinai. God has saved them, and Moses goes up on a mountain at Mount Sinai. He gets the law of God and comes back down and says, God is making this covenant with you, you 12 tribes, and he's going to make you into a kingdom, right? There's a nation, and there's a kingdom where God is now ruling over them. Well, Jesus now is here, much later. And Jesus, we've already seen some echoes of this story where Jesus has gone through the water in baptism, just like Israel went through the Red Sea. He's gone out into the wilderness, like Israel went out into the wilderness, into the promised land, which is like the kingdom. So there's been echoes of this, but Jesus now goes up on a mountain, and there he's taking these 12 followers that I think are a picture of the 12 tribes, and almost saying, okay, take two. We're going to do this thing with Israel once again. And there's this picture of him kind of reconstituting Israel, reconstituting the kingdom. And he's going to explain to them what that's going to look like. It's a beautiful thing. We'll see echoes of that throughout the gospel of Mark as we keep going. But here's these 12 men that are going to be this picture of the whole thing. And he actually, in this section, these couple verses, he gives a bit of a job description for them. So I see three things here that he's saying, this is what it's going to mean for you to be my disciple or my follower. So the first of of all is he calls them to first just be with him. So I think that's a beautiful thing for me. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I've been invited to follow him. The first thing is just be with me, right? You're going to follow me around. You're going to be in my presence. And so that's what they're called to do. He also, um, it says he calls them apostles and he's going to send them out to preach, to proclaim the good news. So the, the term apostle means a sent one. Um, and so Jesus is saying, okay, you're going to be with me. And also um, I, I am reserving the right here to send you out, to go and proclaim the good news that you're experiencing. It's not about just you being in this happy classroom setting. I'm going to be sending you out. I love that that's in there from the very beginning of what it means for them to be disciples. Um, and then the third thing is he's going to give them authority um, over the demons. So this world of evil, this world that's just touched by and ruined by, and in many cases ruled by evil demonic forces, uh, Jesus is taking his followers and saying, you're going to be with me. I'm going to send you out to proclaim that there's good news, and I'm going to give you power over the evil that's out in the world around them. So this is Jesus' mission. Jesus comes, and he walks through this world that's just um, haunted and broken by all these things, and he's saying, I'm here to find people that need to be set free and to do it, to set them free. And here he's taking these disciples who I, I guarantee don't have a clue what's about to happen. Um, but he gives them this mission and says, you're on the mission with me. There's people out there that are hurting that need to be set free, and we're going to do it together. It's beautiful. Now, we get into the list of who the 12 actually are, okay? So uh, in verse 16, He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boernages, that is, sons of thunder, Adam and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So there's the list of the 12. I have literally read entire books on just this list of 12 names, but don't worry, we're not doing that this morning. Um, They're out there and they're great. Um, But I just want to make a couple of comments about this. So one, we already know this isn't all of the disciples, okay? So he took them on the mountain. He chose these 12 from amongst all of them. So Jesus' group of followers is actually a lot bigger than this. It includes men and women. Uh, One of the things actually that we see in this list is there's 12, there's 12 dudes that he calls to be his um, apostles, disciples. Um, and so that's an interesting thing. But also they're all 12 Jewish people. So what we're going to see is Jesus has followers that are Jews. He also eventually is going to have followers that are Gentiles. Jesus, even at this point, has followers that are men, also followers that are women. And so this isn't meant to be like an exclusive kind of a thing. This is meant, I believe, to paint a picture of a certain kind of a reality, right? I think it's meant to tell us something about Israel and the people of God and what he's doing, and we'll let the rest of the story unfold about who gets to follow Jesus and who doesn't and how he utilizes those people. Um, But we're seeing from the beginning, um, he's calling these people in, and this group of people is wild. It's diverse, it's wild, it's kind of crazy. So even just from reading this list, without any background information, we can see um, there's people here that are fishermen, okay? So they're not specialists in theology or ministry or anything like that. They're just fishermen, and Jesus had called them. They get to be part of this whole thing. Um, there's a couple of guys that are called sons of thunder, right? Which, like, I don't know all of what that's about, but it's a pretty, uh, you know, I feel like you got to do something crazy to earn that nickname. We see them be a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, aggressive later in the story, and so maybe that's part of it. There's a tax collector that's been called and invited to be part of this group. We saw that uh, story a bit ago. Um, and so that's a, someone that is basically going to his fellow countrymen, and he's teaming up with the oppressive system. So he's a traitor to his own people, and he's making money off of extorting money from his fellow countrymen. So this is not a popular guy, but he is one of the 12. There is um, a zealot in the mix. A zealot would be someone that's like trying to fight and take power back from the ruling authority. So this is a wild group. And then on top of it all, he ends with Judas, who would betray him. Okay, so we get a spoiler of like how the story is going to go. Jesus is going to be betrayed. But Judas is even part of this list. So what is Jesus going to do with these 12 guys? He, he was not doing auditions. He was not doing tryouts. He wasn't trying to find the 12 absolute best. But he was gathering this group of weirdos and like flunkies and like who knows what they all are. Some of them I assume were very nice people, but here they are. Um, that, sounded, that sounded weird. Um, that's, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, this weird group that he calls together, which just means this. When God is uh, setting out to do something, when Jesus is saying, here's the crew that I'm going to invite, I guarantee, based on this list, there's room for you and I, okay? Wherever we fall in this thing, we assume that we're like, okay, Jesus is now bringing in the specialists and the really good ministry people. That's why he invited me. We shouldn't assume that maybe. Maybe we're more like the zealot or the tax collector or whatever. But he's like, I'm still going to do this thing with you, and I think that's beautiful. All right, um, let's keep going uh, into this whole thing. So we're seeing Jesus calling a group of people. He's going to make a kingdom. He brings in these 12, and there's this beautiful thing that he's starting here, right? Well, into the story now walks a juxtaposition, okay? There's, there's his followers, and now we're going to see his family coming into this whole thing. So verse 20, Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. 
Now, that to me is relatable, right? It sounds like family. Like, so again, my family, perfect, of course, and in-laws included. But your families, I feel like that idea of um, uh, our kid is kind of crazy, right? Like, I've heard that from you guys, okay? So um, it is just like a family to be like, yeah, we've got this one weird kid, you know, that whatever. And it's crazy to me, though, that that's how they see Jesus. Like, that's literally, this is in the Gospel of Mark. They think that Jesus is crazy and out of his mind. So the, the side-by-side is there's all these followers of Jesus that they, they go back to his house, and Jesus is there, and there's people that are just like, if Jesus is there, I'm there, right? I need to be healed. I need to learn from him. Um, I, I'm like, they're finding life in Jesus. And so they're just crowding around and they're just all there to, to like, there's not even room for them to make a sandwich is basically what he's saying. They can't even like, they're, so they're just there. And, um, and meanwhile, his family is off at a distance and they're like, oh man, like Jesus is at it again. And so they're like, let's make the trip. So it's a, it's a 40 mile trip. It's like walking from Lodi to here to come and get Jesus. And so it's a, de- a decent like travel for them at that time. And um, they're just like, they're, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed of Jesus and what he's up to. And they're like, oh boy, he's at it again. So they're going to come and get uh, Jesus. A little bit crazy. I, to me, that's not the, the way Jesus is, or the, the, the family of Jesus is often depicted. But N.T. Wright says it like this. Despite what pious Christian traditions have sometimes said about Mary, Jesus' mother, at this stage at least, she clearly didn't have any idea what he was up to. She had brought the rest of the family to find him and take him away to stop him behaving in such an outrageous fashion, bringing dishonor to the family name. They thought he was mad. So I love that picture. There there are, like, this is one of the things um, with Catholicism that I think they did in a very strange and explicable way of, like, there is, certainly Mary is pictured uh, beautifully in the Gospels. So she's like an example of faith. Honestly, when, she, when like that whole assignment she was given of like giving birth to the Savior is pretty intense and she handled it really gracefully. We'll see again in the future both Jesus' brothers. It's probably his, um, his half-brothers, right? Because if you think of Jesus as the son of uh, Mary and the Holy Spirit, right? So then maybe Mary and Joseph have other kids and these become his half-brothers. I think that's what's being described here. Um, but in this whole thing, his brothers do beautiful things later on too, and Mary does. But here, this is like a weak moment for them, okay? We see them at a low, and I think theologically that's fine, right? We see all the time in the Bible people that do beautiful, great things, and then they have these low moments. I think this is one uh, for, for Mary. And so we're seeing a crowd of people, a group of followers of Jesus that are just finding so much life in him, and we see the family that's like, oh boy, I'm a little embarrassed about what Jesus is up to now. And uh, as I said, many of us know what that's like in a family sense to be kind of on the outside with your family, to have them concerned, to be sort of um, tried to be reined in by the family. Crazy that it's happening to Jesus. Okay, juxtaposition, side by sides. The crowds, there's the family. Now we're going to see another group. These are the scribes, and they're going to come from Jerusalem, which is twice as far away, and they're coming with a mission, and they're going to accuse Jesus. So here we are in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. All right, so here is now this group, this official delegation, the scribes, they're like the um, emissaries, I guess, for probably the Pharisees, like the religious order, the establishment. And they've come all the way from Jerusalem, this long journey, and they're here to say, okay, look, we've, we've heard, okay, we, we get it, guys. Officially, official statement, 
we've heard what Jesus is doing. Their people are being healed. Demons are being cast out. Um, um, traditions are being overthrown. We've heard, and we're here to explain it to you. This is what's happening. He is using the power of Satan um, to do all these great works, okay? That's what um, they're claiming. And so they, they use the term Beelzebul. It's like a, an Old Testament thing. It uh, literally means like Lord of the Flies, okay? So it's like the, the God of the demons is how they describe it. Jesus immediately equates that with Satan in this passage. So it's the enemy. It's the leader of the demonic realm. And so into all of that, they're seeing these good, powerful things that Jesus is doing, and they're like, we can explain it. He's evil himself. Do not follow this guy. He's trouble, and he's danger, okay? So now, I'm just going to say I disagree with that. That's problematic, okay? But you can see these guys have a huge problem on their hands, okay? And I, and I, I feel like this week I tried to be uh, compassionate towards the Pharisees. Like, what are you going to do when you're, you're in charge of the whole religious thing, okay? And you've got things going pretty darn well, okay? You're, you're like, man, this is, this is great. Uh, we've got order across the board. We've got rules put in place. People are, for the most part, following them. Things are going good. And into it, all of a sudden comes Jesus, okay? And he comes in, and not only is he doing good things, that's great, but he is also challenging our authority to tell other people what to do. And so there's this problem that arises, and they're seeing this guy that comes in, and he is, um, he's theologically off from their standpoint. And so they're like, how do we discredit what he's doing? And honestly, if I'm, if I'm trying to be compassionate to them, which I, I gave it a good shot, I feel like I've seen versions of this. I feel like in evangelicalism, we have this, uh, this way to just kind of look at the people around us and like, you know what? There's good results in their ministry, but their theology is off, right? Or their methodology is a little, like, shallow or whatever. And so we begin to, like, demonize everyone that disagrees with us. So I, I feel like I've seen shades of this. I feel like I've owned some shades of this. And there is a hard place to be where you're like, I'm doing the right stuff and the good stuff, and this person's over here doing stuff that's not so good, but they're getting all this fruit and succeeding. It's a hard human thing to experience this. Paul actually, I think, experienced a version of this in Philippians. Um, he's writing to this church and he's saying there's these people that are preaching Christ um, out of like envy. Like they, they, they don't like Paul's ministry, so they're trying to outdo Paul's ministry and they're preaching Christ. And Paul's response was like, what, what do we, like, this isn't a competition. Like I, I, I think he would say, I wish their motives were good, but he's like, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed and that's what I want. Now, the, the Pharisees are actively opposing the work of Christ, so it's different but I think for me, like the, the, the invitation, like what, like I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I don't want to see the actual work of God. God's doing big, powerful things. And I don't want to look at that and have my own ego and pride be a thing that leads me to be like, oh, and that is illegitimate, right? Oh, we don't want anything to do with that. That is not good. I feel like that's the mistake these Pharisees, the scribes sent from the Pharisees are making of, um, like they're comparing. It's about success. It's about control. And in the process of trying to control what happens in the name of God, they are actually opposing the very thing that God is doing. It's a scary thought, something we need to make sure we stay away from. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond to this whole thing? First thing Jesus does is not um, address their heart or whatever. The first thing Jesus does is he basically exposes how silly their argument is. He's like, you guys, this this is your argument? This is like the laziest logic ever. He's like, so you're trying to say that uh, Satan is trying to um, dis like build his kingdom by destroying his kingdom. He's like, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense, right? Like Satan comes, casts out the demonic forces, and somehow that's supposed to serve Satan's cause. Like he's like, you guys, are, that's so lazy and illogical. Like that's not how this works. 
And so Jesus gives some lessons on, you know, a house divided can't stand. Um, Abraham Lincoln found that really compelling. I think it's solid logically. But I just see Jesus saying, like, you guys, seriously? Like, you're seeing all this. All these people, this world that's, like, dominated by evil in so many ways. And you see me stepping into it. And you see me setting people free. You see me literally healing people. And you're going to step into that and be like, you're a problem, Jesus. This is the work of Satan. He's like, this is crazy. So Jesus responds further from here. And as he does, first he just says, like, you guys, just logically, that's terrible. Um, but then he begins to give us, I think, a picture into the heart of his ministry, what he's up to. And then I think he begins to expose the heart of these scribes that come down to accuse him. Um, so first of all, verse 27, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what is happening here is I think he's saying, he's, he's reframing the whole thing. Okay, This isn't Satan trying to sta- uh, cast out Satan. He says what's happening here is there's been this strong man that's been ruling things. So Jesus looks around at the world around him, and he sees demon, demon, um, demonized people, people being attacked by demons all around him. Um, he sees like lies and evil being like held sway. He sees world powers trying to dominate. And Jesus sees all this. He sees people's sins weighing them down. And he looks at all that and he says, look, there's been this strong man that's been like running the show. And in his house, he's got these people bound up. And so then Jesus reframes it and says, look, I'm like the person that's coming into that strong man's house. And the first thing I'm going to do is bind him up. And then we are going to plunder that space. I, I love that picture of like he's going to take what the, the, all the ways that evil and Satan is sort of the personification of evil, all the ways that this has taken control of everything and everyone, and Jesus is like, I'm here to set people free. Now, this is beautiful because Jesus' vocation, Jesus saying that's what I'm going to do, he's drawing on a bigger picture thing of like God's vocation, what God of the Old Testament has said he was going to do. We said early on, Mark keeps interacting with the the prophecies in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 49, we get exactly this picture, okay? So it says, this is Yahweh now explaining this, the God of of Israel in the Old Testament. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So I think it's significant. Jesus on earth is looking back to Isaiah and his promise that this is a time that God's people, Israel, was in ca- like going into captivity, going into exile. Uh, they're being oppressed by, by Babylon, like this, this horrible power over them. They're, they're like just wrapped up in their own sins. And Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is saying to them, um, I am going to come and I'm going to set my people free, right? I'm going to take the prey from this like strong man. Like that's the picture that they're getting of Yahweh. And so Jesus comes and he frames his ministry in exactly the same way. I'm here to set people free from the strong man. I think it is an identification always with, um, with Yahweh. Jesus does see himself in the same way um, doing what Yahweh was saying he would come and do. This, this, by the way, is a prayer that we pray for the people of Israel, right? They'll be set free from their oppressors. We pray for everybody that is oppressed, that God will set them free. And Jesus is here in verse 27 saying, this is exactly what I've come to do. 
So if we, if we look at ourselves, like Jesus is saying, like, I love this picture. He's like, I'm not, I haven't come just to set the record straight. I haven't come just to show everybody um, that I'm right and they're wrong. He's saying, I've come to set people free. And, and looking at his day and all the, the havoc, the evil had worked, I think we can look at our own day, right? Our own situation. And we look around and I do wonder this, like there's a lot of demon possession type stuff going on in the gospels. Um, I, I think I mentioned, we see less of it in other places in scripture. It's definitely at a like fever pitch when Jesus is on earth. And, and we see like less of it today, right? And I, I always wonder, is there less of it now or are we just not attuned to it? Maybe we just ascribe like psychological things to it and, and we don't call it demon possession. I'm really not sure, but I would say either way, however this plays out, I know for sure there is demonic activity all around us, even still today. Like I believe biblically that's the picture that we're painted. Paul says our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and the authorities. Like, so I think there's this demonic thing happening even still. Um, I also think that evil like, just destroys everything around us. So it's our own thoughts. It's our own sin nature. It's our own like, oppressive systems. Like, it's constantly around us. So some of you, there's people, of, some of you in our church family here that have been literally set free from demonic oppression. Okay, So you've been attacked by demons, and, and, and the Lord has set you free from that. And that's beautiful. I love that that's been the case. So it's Jesus doing what he comes to do, is setting people free. I think there's more of us in this room that had these... Um, demonic-inspired thought patterns, right? Where, where the ways that we view ourselves, the way we think of ourselves, we have the voice of the accuser in our own head, and so we're constantly being told and we're telling ourselves, I'm not good enough, I'll never amount to anything, um, I'm bad for the people around me. Like, I think that happens all the time. And so many of you, I think the Lord has broken in and, and exposed those things for the lies that they are and set you free from the work of the enemy. Um, the word Satan literally means accuser. And so these accusations that we get constantly about how we can never be loved, we'll never be good enough, we'll never whatever, um, these lies come at us. And Jesus is here, I think, to set us free from all of these things. Jesus, on our behalf, has come in to this strong man, Satan, who is, I think, very powerful and is very scary and is very dark. But Jesus is showing, like, I, I am so much bigger than this. We, we saw it in the temptation. He goes into, um, in the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, he goes into the wilderness and defeats the temptations of Satan. He's showing that he's so much stronger. He will show it all throughout the Gospels. And then eventually Jesus dies to put the nail in the coffin, so to speak. And eventually when Jesus comes back again, it's like done, 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 done. Like completely. So there's this battle going on, but Jesus is so much stronger than that. And so Jesus on our behalf has bound the strong man. And Jesus is saying, my ministry is all about going in and taking those people that have been held ca captive taking those people that have been wounded, taking those people that are tied up and sidelined and everything else through the sin and evil and, and, and lies and everything that Satan um, spreads, my job is to go and get those people. And I'm saying, man, we could have a whole worship service in here about how powerful it is that we have been set free from that. We could tell story after story after story in this room of deliverance that we've experienced. But I'm going to tell you, there's still many of us in this room that we need that. Like, we need that. Maybe it's like completely. Maybe it's like, I've never given my heart to the Lord, and I just need the freedom that he offers. I'm telling you, that's on offer right now. Like, Jesus say, is saying, I came to do that, and he came for you, and I want you to see that and experience that. I also think there's a lot of us here that have this, like, corner or this part of ourselves that we keep walled off. And yes, I've kind of offered myself in a general sense to God, but there's this darker spot of, of maybe my own doubts, maybe my insecurities. Maybe it's like my lust or my addiction to pornography. Maybe it's something with alcohol or drugs, or um, maybe it's some relational dynamics. Like whatever that is, we keep a section of ourselves walled off. And Jesus, I think, is saying the same thing. Like I'm binding that strong man and I'm coming in to plunder that. And I just, so many of us need that last part of ourselves to be conquered by the Lord. 
Lord as well and invited out into freedom in life. Like, as I've been um, thinking about this and just that picture of Jesus as the, the stronger man plundering the strong man's house, like, I, I've, I've, like, wanted to sort of reclaim as we walk in here week by week, we walk through the lobby and we become blind to it. But on that big wall, right, it says, Jesus saves in massive lettering. And it's not just decoration. It's this reminder. I want it to be for us a reminder of every time we walk in and walk out and we see that sign, this reminder of, yes, that's right, Jesus saves. Jesus is more powerful. He's leading me out of the ways that I've been enslaved, the ways I even participate in my own enslavement, and he's coming to lead me away from those things. It's a beautiful picture. So Jesus is saying, Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. He says that. It's not falling apart because Satan's working against it. No, Satan's kingdom is falling apart because I am here and I am fighting against it, and Jesus is the one that is going to win this over. Now, amen. Jesus does all of that for us, right? Then what does he do? He turns and addresses what's going on with these religious leaders, the ones that are looking at the actual work of God. I mean, just think of how much they prayed for the work of God in the world. Like, this place is so broken, and we're all hurting so much. And, um, and so, Lord, come and work. And then here is Jesus, and he's literally working. People are being set free. Demons are being cast out. People are being healed. Um, all this life is being found, and they look at that, and they're like, oh, gross. This is from the devil himself. And so Jesus turns then to those religious leaders that see it that way, and he talks about their hearts, their hard hearts. So here's what he says in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, I don't want to spend forever here, but this brings us to this topic of the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin that maybe that's like totally new to you, but this is where it comes from. So I remember maybe 10 years ago or so, there was um, this like stream of like YouTube videos coming out where there was like teenagers and like, I don't know, old atheists and stuff like that. And they would basically make a YouTube video where they're like, I hereby commit to the unforgivable sin and I blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And it was like, I was just seeing more and more of these come out. And it's, just, it's really sad, you know, to see that, um, but I also think it's misguided, okay? So if you, obviously, like, I don't condone uh, blaspheming the Spirit and doing this, but they thought, okay, I'm just going to do this in a way that makes sure that I can never be forgiven, and I'm, I'm unforgivable, and um, that's great. But here's what's actually happening here. It, it has actually nothing to do with, like, it's not something you can do accidentally. So I know there actually are probably people here that you're, like, afraid, like, maybe I accidentally commit the unforgivable sin. Like, I don't want to do that, and there's, like, a little fear about that. So don't worry. It's not something you can do accidentally. Um, I also don't think it's something that you can do once and for all, just like these YouTube people, like, good, I'm going to post it online, and then I'm done, and I can move past Jesus forever. I think it's really misguided. Um, the best explanation I got of this is from Morna Hooker, who's a, um, she's a, like, the- a theologian and a commentator. She says, Mark has interpreted the unforgivable sin as the deliberate refusal to acknowledge an activity of God's Spirit in Jesus' ministry. It's the attitude which makes a man attribute the work of God to Satan and confuse goodness and evil, truth and falsehood. Such behavior indicates that an individual is guilty of an eternal sin. His attitude of mind is so fixed and obstinate that it forms a a permanent obstacle between God and man. What, What she's saying is this. It's not like a statement you make once of like, I want nothing to do with God. I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. No, uh, she's saying it is this um, spirit that, that leads a person to be so opposed to God, so stubborn in their thoughts against God, that even when you see him working as clearly as he was in the ministry of Jesus, you say, I want nothing to do with that. That's evil. And she's saying it's that position of heart. So 
Um, I, I just want to invite you to, like, if you're, like, the person that's, like, afraid of, like, oh, I don't want to, like, no, you can't do this by accident. And if you are, if you are the person that has been living your life in such a way that you're, like, I'm so opposed that no matter what God does, I'm going to stand against that. I just want to invite you to see Jesus as the one who sets us free from all oppression and all slavery. I think that's a form of mental, um, spiritual slavery where you're just totally opposed to what he's doing. And I think God invites us beyond that. So I think it's fascinating that who, who commits this unforgivable sin in the Gospels? It is not the sinners. It's not the tax collectors. It's not the prostitutes. It's not the atheists that are against God. The people who commit this are actually the religious leaders. They're the ones with the credentials. They're the ones that have been to seminary. They're the ones that are trying to lead a nation spiritually. And they're the ones that are so hard-hearted, so into their own control, that they are opposed to the things that God's doing. And Jesus is here saying, man, I'm, I'm coming to fight against all of that. And I'm coming to invite you beyond that. So no matter where you're at, I invite you, look, at, look to the strong man. Jesus is the strongest man of all, and he is there to set you free. So wherever you're at, even if you feel like that's you, just recognize the work of God, acknowledge it as the work of Christ, and you're good. Like, I think that's the whole point. You're good. I think the only way to act, to like commit the unforgivable sin would be to live a life with zero humility and zero ability to recognize what God's doing. So the irony in, in all this, the irony in all this is the, the scribes traveled a long ways to come find Jesus and to be like, this, the, the ministry of this man is building the kingdom of Satan, right? But the, the irony is Satan wasn't served by what Jesus was doing, for sure. But Satan definitely was being served by what the religious leaders were doing. When, when, they, when they come and they accuse, remember Satan means accuser. Like that's what the word means. So when they come and they accuse, they're doing actually Satan's work for him. And I, I've been sort of startled by seeing how easy it is for us to do the work of Satan for him. We don't need to make his job easier. Um, this, like, Jesus is inviting us to something better. So what does that look like? What is he inviting us to? We'll see in the last couple of verses as we wrap up here. The true family of Jesus. So now finally, Jesus' family arrives on the scene. They've come because they thought he was crazy. They're going to pull him out. So here's what he says in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother uh, are, my, are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So I said that Mark is painting uh, juxtapositions here. He's laying things side by side by side. Um, and so first of all, we see there's the crowds uh, that are following Jesus, and there's Jesus' family. The crowds are like, man, we're finding life in Jesus. Jesus' family is embarrassed, and they're, on, they're outside. So the crowds are inside here. They're inside listening to Jesus. The family is outside. Now, I'm, he doesn't, Mark doesn't say it, but I'm sure, like, their arms crossed, like, um, hey, could someone go in and get Jesus and tell him, like, he needs to cut this out. He needs to be done. So not a good look for the family, but the crowds are in there, and they're just learning from Jesus. Interestingly, there's the scribes that are, that are coming, the religious authorities, and there's the family. Neither one of them takes Jesus at face value. Neither one of them is honoring what's happening with Jesus here, okay? So the scribes were, I think, threatened by Jesus' ministry, but the family was embarrassed by Jesus' ministry. And I am honestly not sure which is better. Is it better to be, like, um, accusing G Jesus of having a demon, or is it better to accuse him of being insane? Like, I don't know, honestly, which is better. It just shows how... Um, our posture can get wrong in all these different ways. Mark is comparing and contrasting this. 
But Jesus looks, and look, I mean, I think Jesus is saying this to us today too. So many of you in this room know, what is it like to be shunned by your family? What is it like to be wounded by your family? What is it like to have those people that should be your like ride and die people, like the people that are just there by your side? Like, what is it like to have them sort of turn on you? Um, Many of us know what it's like to be sort of ostracized from our friend circles outside of the church. When they find out we believe what we do about Jesus, it's like, okay, like I thought you were intelligent, but this is weird, you know? Um, Many of our youth, I think these days, are like out in the world and they're experiencing a weird tension, a weird opposition where they're kind of sidelined. They're a little bit on the outside. They're not doing what the other kids are doing. Like that's always been a thing, but it feels like it's intensifying in some ways. So all of that is the case where our families cannot be the safe place that we want them to be. They can be a source of pain in a way that's really shocking and surprising. And Jesus kind of hears that, and he's in there, and he just looks around, and he says, like, okay, my mother and my brothers are outside. Well, let me ask you, who are my mothers and my brothers? He says, isn't it all of these? Isn't it these people that are saying, like, hey, I'm here to, like, do this with you. I'm here to do the will of God. You've got this mission, and we're here with you. That's what really family is meant to be. And so Jesus is saying, um, this is like my, my radical redefinition of family. It's, it's those of us that are getting after it together and pursuing the things of God together. It doesn't, doesn't mean we hate our families, although honestly, Jesus kind of says that later, so I'll have to dance around that later. Um, I, I, it's funny to me, every time I try to like nuance and make, make a little more palatable what Jesus says, he usually is right there being like, no, nah, I think that everyone should struggle with it. I'm going to say it as hard as I possibly can. But he's inviting us to see ourselves as his family. So we're not, who's the real family? Not the ones that are sitting there judging and being like, oh man, we're so embarrassed by what you're doing. No, it's the ones that are invited in saying, hey, we're doing this. Let's do it together. Let's do it side by side. Let's have each other's backs. The church, I believe, is intended to be the family of God. We're ten, intended to be the true family of Jesus. What's hard in all this is the church, we're made up of regular people too, right? And often, especially in the suburban churches, what happens is we have people in our church family that are, that are single, right? People that are divorced, people that are uh, widowed, uh, people that have never gotten married, people that are young, people that are old, like this whole group. And there's a certain kind of a person that is made to feel really lonely in the church, okay? I don't think we do it on purpose, but it's like, this is my family. We're all going after it together. And it's like, when everything becomes family-focused, when everything becomes... Um, Couples focused or whatever, like there's a kind of person that's hurt and left out, and there's a person that can be made to be ostracized, there's a person that can be made to not be filled, brought in. And I just, Jesus' picture here should be the solution to all of that, right? Where we, like literally anybody can walk through these doors, literally anybody can like join a relationship with us, and literally anybody can be like, hey, you are part of the family. I think Jesus' invitation is every one of us and anyone that walks in here can be part of the family of God. That's the invitation. Now, it's hard, and we'll hurt each other, and we're going to mess it up, but there's this beautiful picture of, yeah, let's not, let's not accuse Jesus of, of being wrong. I don't think there's many people in here that are probably in, into the accusing of Jesus thing, though I will say we're all going to struggle with some of the things Jesus does. Um, maybe, maybe we do get embarrassed of him sometimes, but I think for all of us, the invitation is there to let's accept the call. I mean, he's building a family. He's doing a beautiful thing. He's, he's at work in the world. There's evil all around us, but he's inviting us to do that plundering of the strong man's house with him. So let's find uh, side by side with each other and side by side with Jesus. Let's find those strongholds in our own hearts and in the lives of the people around us. And let's just begin inviting people out of it in the power and the authority of Jesus to say, come join me in um, what it is that, that God is doing. Um, let's just ponder that as we pray, and then we're going to sing some more songs. Lord, I thank you so much for these little pictures of things that happened um, so long ago and yet things that feel so relevant to me now. And thank you that you're more powerful than anything we experience, anything we encounter. 
Thank you that your love and your grace uh, does not slow down, does not stop, it doesn't hold back. Um, Lord, I think many of us uh, have resisted you in, in our own ways, in our own times, some pretty blatantly and others more subtly. But Lord, I just pray that you would um, look at every aspect of our lives, at our hearts, anything that was, is bound up, that's imprisoned, that's less than fully offered to you. Lord, I pray that you would uh, plunder those parts of us, Lord. Take us for yourself, Lord. Use us as part of your kingdom. May we be your followers. May we be your teammates. May we be um, side by side with you in a way that's beautiful and life-giving and experiences the hope and the joy that we have in you. Lord, that's what we want. So I pray that you would provide that for us. And Lord, for everybody that's here that is just feeling this, this pull and this tug to say, I need to let go. I need to um, embrace, Lord, would you do it? Lord, would you speak to us as we sing these songs? Would you speak to us? Would you invite us? Lord, would we do the business that we need to do with you? Um, and would you just mold us into this beautiful family that you describe? That's what we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.